Hey, Whatnotters, the podcast, Pastor Wolf Mueller here. January 6th, Epiphany 2023, still getting used to the year. And this is really a, the start of a, of a new season of Whatnot, the podcast. Uh, sad news that Table Talk Radio closed down uh, last month. I'm going to try to open up now Whatnot, the podcast with a little more regularity. So at least once a week, maybe more, i got my eyes set on daily. I don't know if I'll be able to get there. We're going to take your questions, muse on some theological things today, a little reflection on Epiphany and the wise men who worship Jesus, a great question email from Norma, trying to understand the millennialist interpretation of the scripture, and then I respond to a Twitter thing that got me all worked up on doing theology with an eye to the judgment day. So hope this is all helpful for you. Don't forget to subscribe to the Wednesday Whatnot email. You can find that at the website wolfmuller.co. Wednesday Whatnot, it's probably on the side of every page. And uh, keep in touch that way. Uh, send you your questions at wolfmuller.co slash contact. Thanks for being along for the ride. I'd love to know what you think. Here's the show. Hey, Whatnot, the podcast, blessed epiphany to you. January 6th today, marking the end of Christmas. It's okay. You are now authorized to put down your Christmas tree and put away your Christmas vacations. Although leave the nativity set up there, especially if there's wise men visiting, because that's what we celebrate today. Uh, it's the Eastern Christmas. This is when the Eastern Church celebrates a Christmas, when the wise men came to visit Jesus. Uh, there's the old tradition of three of them. And it's one of these, I think that it's one of these popular things to say, well, you know, there were surely more than three because look, they filled Jerusalem and Herod was afraid and all the people were astonished. Uh, but I, I don't know who the fourth wise man would have been who was like, they're looking at him saying, what did you bring? <laughs> Gold, frankincense, myrrh, where, where's your gift for Jesus? So my best guess is that there were three wise men uh, flanked by hundreds of attendants um, they would have had a little mini army with them to travel, especially with such expensive gifts. They would have had attendants and servants, maybe even their families were there, so that the prophecy says from Isaiah that Jerusalem was filled with camels from the east, uh, This so that it would have been a huge, big party. Uh, but I think there's probably three of them at the head of the party who offered these gifts to Jesus. And the most astonishing thing is that when they see the star rejoicing with great joy right over the house in Bethlehem. They go there and Matthew tells us that they fell down and worshiped Jesus. As we think theologically about these things, this is going to be the great joy is that they, they see this child, not according to outward appearance. Jesus looked like every other baby that was hanging around in Bethlehem. But they could recognize from the word of God, uh, the prophecy, maybe in this school of waiting established by Daniel. That's the old tradition that Daniel set up this, uh, this school, this wisdom there in Babylon, uh, preparing them to wait for this sign. And now, according to the word, the sign has appeared and they find the child and they see him with spiritual eyes enlightened by the word of God. They know that he is God in the flesh. And they fall down and they worship him. This is our simple Christian faith that we worship Jesus. I think this is helpful. When, whenever the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses or whenever the, our Muslim friends are talking to us about theology 
and Christianity. They're trying to sort out the difference. This is what we say simply. We worship Jesus. That's what's taught us in the scripture. And if they can't do that, then they're not following the scripture. It's so nice to notice that the gospel of Matthew begins and ends with this same truth. So we have it at the beginning. The wise men find the baby held in the arms of Mary. They fall down and they worship him. And then in Matthew 28, the disciples, 11 of them, Judas is already rotting away, but the 11 who remain faithful find Jesus on a hill in Galilee and they see him and they fall down and they worship him. The text says some doubted. So their worship was mixed with doubt and their faith was mixed with fear, but still they worshiped Jesus. So these are the two bookends of the Gospel of Matthew, the worship of Jesus by his disciples and by his church. So we join in that same um, with the wise men and with the disciples, and we also worship Jesus while we wait for him to return. There's Luther, I think, loved to preach on Christmas and Epiphany and he, he goes on and on about how if the people would have walked by and seen these wise men all decked in their glorious garb, falling down and worshiping the baby, they would have said, what great fools. This is what the worship of Jesus looks like. Foolishness to the world. But is the things that are foolish to the world are the wisdom of God and also for us the power of God to save. So God be praised that today we join the wise men and we worship Jesus. And don't forget to go to church today, by the way. Hopefully your church has an epiphany service. If they don't, hustle down here to Austin, 7 o'clock. We'll see you at St. Paul Lutheran Church. I got a question from Norma who's asking about... Norma's trying to understand premillennialism. We'll remember that there's probably three, four, five different views of the end times, eschatology, we call it, eschatos means last in Greek, and logos means word or study of here in this context, so eschatology, study the last things, uh, and and also just remember as we think theologically about that, that classically, if you read some of the old dogmatics books and they're talking about eschatology, they're not just talking about the end of the world, but also the end of ourselves, so death and what happens after death. Uh, what happens to the soul and body and so forth. That's also part of our eschatology. But normally when you hear people talking about it today, they're talking about the end of the world, and it breaks off into probably four, I'd say, let's say five major views about the end times. And they're they're labeled in regard to the millennium. So you have a pre-millennialism, post-millennialism, ah-millennialism, those are the main three. You have a preterism. Some people say that the end times already have happened. You have a full and partial preterism. That has to do with how much has been fulfilled. And then in premillennialism, you have a historic or classic premill and then a dispensational premill. So there's two major different flavors of premillennialism. Uh, and, and this has to do with Revelation 20. Remember in Revelation 20, it talks about the thousand years and the coming of Christ and the um, enthronement of the Lord's people. We rule and reign with him. And the question is, how does the coming of Jesus relate to the thousand years? So the pre-mill say that Jesus comes back to establish the thousand-year reign. 
Post-Mill says that the thousand-year reign is accomplished by the church and Jesus comes after. Amill, which is what we are and most Christians have been for a long time, uh, and I'm utterly convinced that Amill is the right plain reading of the scripture. It's not a symbolic reading, but it's just the plain reading of the scripture. And you, you can find a but if you just search for amillennialism on Wolfmuller on YouTube, you can find a bunch of stuff there. Uh, but Amill says that the the thousand years described in Revelation 20 is a is a spiritual description of the church, or just a description of the church age. Uh, the things that we can't see happening now. So, so Norma writes, um, I grew up in the LCMS. My belief about the end times since childhood has always been that Jesus will return someday. The dead will be raised. All of mankind will be judged on that day. The non-believers will suffer eternal damnation in hell. Those of us that believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior will enjoy eternal salvation in heaven. That's right. True. Like we confess in the creed, he'll come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. That was pretty much the extent of what was discussed about it in the church when I grew up. Considering that there's a grand total of about four column inches dedicated to the millennium in the Lutheran Book of Concord, I suppose it's not terribly surprising. It was not a big issue uh, at the time of the Reformation. There's Augsburg 17, which says we deplore all Jewish opinions, basically about the earthly kingdom. And, and, the, that idea of Jewish opinions is fascinating to me, Norma, well, and everyone who's listening, uh, because it excludes both pre-mill and post-mill because both of those discuss an earthly kingdom and, and the reign of Jesus in this era as a transformative reign of the earth. So... This is what the Pharisees were looking for when they were hoping that the Messiah would overthrow Herod or Pilate, take up the, the throne of David there in Jerusalem, lead armies and bring peace through wars, etc. That Pharisaical hope for the kingdom is what is, re is what is rejected by Augsburg 17, but it's what's asserted in one way or another by both pre-mill and post-mill. Interesting. But Norma is right, <clears throat> and I remember back in the old evangelical days when I was a dispensational premillennialist, and I was into it. I went over to Israel. When I was 19 years old, I w went backpacking by myself in Israel. I was going to be there for three months. It ended up being about six weeks because at some point I was, I was in the Sea of Galilee hanging out in Capernaum, and I called Carrie. We had just started dating like three weeks before I left, and I was on the phone with her, and she said, Hey, uh, if you're going to be all over the world, I don't see what the point of us dating is. And so a couple weeks later, I was back in town. A couple weeks later, we were engaged. A couple weeks after that, I'd re-enrolled in school. I'd dropped out of college. <clears throat> anyway, I went over to Israel for two reasons. One was to become a man. I'd taken these anthropology classes, and uh, they had talked about that, that you had to have a coming-of-age ceremony. So I said, okay, fine. That's pretty funny, actually. There I was becoming a man, walking around Jerusalem by myself. I suppose it worked halfway. But the other reason was I wanted to see biblical prophecy fulfilled before my eyes. I wanted to, I, you know, the, the temple had to be rebuilt so that the Antichrist could offer the sacrifice in the rebuilt temple. I wanted to go and see where they're rebuilding the temple. I wanted to go and see 
how these uh, prophecies of Gog and Magog are going to all happen. I was, I was, I was there, convinced that the newspaper was basically just a modern version of what what had been promised already by Daniel and Ezekiel. Crazy. So I was into the the dispensational premillennial thing. And when we started going through new member classes, catechism classes at the Missouri Synod Church, uh, I was astonished at how little there was about the end times. I mean, back in these days, this would be mid-90s. You turn on Christian radio, and half the time you're getting a Bible study on Daniel and Revelation. I think it's cooled down quite a bit. I don't think it's the same fervency the eschatological fervency that was there in evangelicalism in the 90s has kind of given way because evangelicalism is mushy. It's always being, even though it wants to be anti-culture, it's always being shaped by the culture. Um, it's just got a lag time. And so now you're starting to see what kind of environmentalism and, and, and social justice working into evangelicalism. And so they're less about Jesus is going to come and wreck house and more about the church has to make a big difference. Seemed like the tone has really changed, but but in those days it was all about the end times, and I couldn't believe how little the Lutherans had written about it. I, by the way, and this is going to be the punchline of this whole thing, Norma. Uh, I at seminary I wrote a little essay called "Dispensationalism: What and Why Not," and I did this to try to fill in the gap of the critique, the lack of critique of premillennial dispensationalism that I'd found in the Lutheran Church. But I found a series of four articles in an old Concordia Theological Quarterly that that actually addresses this really well. If you go to wolfmuller.co slash dispensationalism, you can find that article that I wrote 20 years ago, and you can track down the footnotes. And a lot of the questions that you're about to ask are going to be answered there. But I, too, I was... I was like you. I was like, why come the Lutherans don't talk about the end times? Uh, Norma continues, I'm getting somewhat annoyed with so many televangelists making the end times sound like a terrifying event. So I've been trying to educate myself on the end times. Your YouTube videos on the topic have been extremely helpful. Thank you. I've also listened to several YouTube videos where the three main views pre-post Amil have been debated, and I definitely think that the scripture lends the most support to the Amillennial view. Right. But I'm trying at least to understand the premillennial view and I'm having difficulty understanding why pre, excuse me, pre-mill dispensationalists believe God has not yet fulfilled his promise to the physical nation of Israel. Doesn't Joshua 21, 43 to 45 state very clearly that his covenant has been fulfilled? What am I missing? You are not missing anything. One of the marks of dispensational premillennialism is that they want to point to all the unfulfilled biblical prophecies. And one of the things that they do all the time is say that God promised to give Israel the land from the Euphrates to Egypt and this big swath of land. And then they say, but God has never done it. And they miss all of the texts that say so plainly that God, in fact, has done it. These are listed in that essay that I mentioned to you. Joshua 21 is there. There's also a beautiful line in the history of King David where it talks about how he took land he recovered the land all the way to the river, Euphrates, so that it. the text is saying that not only did Israel have the land that went all the way to the Euphrates, they lost it, and then they got it back. 
So that this idea that God still has a physical land promise to keep with Israel has not yet been fulfilled is one of these strange things for dispensationalism. But just to understand that dis- that, that that dispensationalism is um, it it's theological cash. It trades in the idea that there are prophecies not yet fulfilled so that they can look for the fulfillment of those prophecies. And the way that they have those prophecies unfulfilled is by saying that they were not fulfilled in Jesus, but rather the prophecies refer to the physical elements of the nation of Israel. Now, that land promise might be an exception because we just see, look, the promise already there in Joshua. It tells us that God gave them all the land that he promised to give them. And then again, in oh, it must be 2 Samuel. He says he gave it to them again. But let's just take some of the other promises and and see how they're fulfilled. For example, the Lord says to David, your son will sit on the throne forever. We understand that that refers to Jesus. And in fact, that's how Peter preaches it in his Pentecost sermon from Acts chapter 2, that he raised him to his right hand and fulfilled that promise. But they understand it to be a physical throne in the city of Jerusalem, where a physical descendant, maybe Jesus, but a physical descendant will sit on it. So they have an a, a, is Israelocentric, a land-centered, an earth-centered understanding of these promises, rather than the biblical understanding that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. The temple, for example, I'll build this, uh, that the Lord will rule in the midst of the temple, that the Antichrist will present himself in the temple of God. They understand the temple to be the physical temple, like the Pharisees did when Jesus said, tear this temple down and I'll build it up in three days. But we understand that the temple is the body of Christ. And this Antichrist promise that Paul gives to the Thessalonians is fulfilled, in fact, in the Christian church. So they, so they, because they have a, a, a very Jewish, very physical understanding of these promises, they can't see even where the Bible has said that the promises are fulfilled in Christ, they can't see them. They have to say, well, no, that's only the fulfillment. That's a spiritual fulfillment. But we're looking for a physical, earthly fulfillment. Um, This is, by the way, the origin of the two fulfillment idea. You have a typological and and a physical or literal fulfillment of the prophecies that comes in dispensationalism. It's a very dangerous way to read the Bible. We have to say, look, if the Bible tells us that the promise has been fulfilled, then the promise has been fulfilled. And we don't look for another. So you can do kind of a physical Rorschach or a, a, a prophecy Rorschach test. I saw what is <laughs> I saw some meme the other day where it said uh, my therapist gave me a Rorschach test, which is apparently a just a bunch of pictures of Donald Trump. I'm never going back to that fascist again. <laughs> so the Rorschach test is you get an ink blot and you have to see what you see in it. So you can do a a prophecy Rorschach test to the dispensationalists and you say something like throne of David. And even though Peter says the throne of David is at the right hand of God, where Jesus sits now, they say, no, uh, a physical golden throne in Jerusalem or the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Hebrews tells us that that was the death of Jesus on the cross, beautifully prophesied by Daniel. But the dispensationalist says, no, it's a, it's the goal. It's the red heifer sacrificed in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem or the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 2. 
It's his body, which is rebuilt. It's resurrected in three days. His body is the temple. That's the church. And the dispensationalist says, no, it's the rebuilt temple in the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Or even Jerusalem. We hear Jerusalem in the scriptures, and we think the place where the Lord dwells, the church. And they hear, no, the physical city in, um, in Israel. So, so this is how the dispensational mind works. It, it refuses to see the promises fulfilled in Jesus. It goes back to one of the principles that was articulated by Ryrie and Schofield, especially Schofield in the, in the Schofield Reference Bible. This is the popularization of dispensationalism, where it, it has these three distinctions, a literal rather than allegorical reading of the Scripture, uh, that the end of history is the glory of God, not the salvation of man, but put those two aside. This is the, the third one, is the big one here, is that God has two people, the his physical earthly people, the Jews, and his spiritual heavenly people, the church. And that distinction between the two people of God and drawing this line between Israel and the church leads to all sorts of um, misunderstandings of the scripture. They try to re- remember how Paul says in Ephesians 2 that he's torn down the wall of separation and he made out of the two one. That is, out of Jew and Gentile, he's made one. Dispensationalism rebuilds that wall. And that idea that there's two people leads to two different ways of reading the Bible. And it takes away the fulfillment of all of the promises from the Israelites. Norma continues. My next question comes from Revelation 12. Oh, let me say one more thing before I get to this question. I remember, I'll tell you a story. I was, I went to Calvary Chapel one time. This is when I was taking catechism class at a Missouri Synod church, was still involved in Calvary Chapel in Albuquerque. They had a coffee shop there that had like all these black and white pictures of Israel from the trips that Skip Heitzig, who was the pastor back then, he used to do these trips to Israel. That's, I don't begrudge him. I do it too. It's great. But they had all these, um, uh, in fact, Lord willing, 2024, we'll take another trip over to Israel and check things out. Go to Jordan. should be pretty cool. Uh, keep an eye out. Um, but uh, I, was wa- I went to the coffee shop to ask this question. And I think I asked it to about 20, 25 people, something like that. If you could only be Catholic or Jewish, which would you be? And almost everybody said Jewish. This is an amazing thing that they they were considered themselves to be closer to being Jewish than they were to being Catholic. Now it's a bad question. God be praised that the Lord has given us more options than those two. But here's one question: There was a couple, two couples, so two guys, two girls. They were walking along, and I stopped them. I asked them this question, and one of the girls said, like right away, "Oh, Catholic." And the other three looked at her like she was crazy. And they said, no, Jewish, Jewish, of course, Jewish. And, and she looked at them and said, but the Catholics believe in Jesus. And the other three responded, yeah, but when Jesus returns, he's going to show himself to be the true Messiah to the Jews, and then they're going to become Christians and believe. And she said, oh, yeah, put me down as Jewish. <laughs> in other words, this is the, the, the Jewish-centric reading and interpretation of the New Testament, and it's, and it's particularly dangerous. Okay, now, Norma continues. My next question comes from Revelation 20, 
What's your explanation of the first rev, uh, resurrection in Revelation 20, verse 5? Do you think that the rest of the dead don't come to life until the thousand years are ended or non-believers that have died? Or does it also include believers that have died but were not martyred? I understand the thousand years to be a long time, not literal. Where else can I find scripture that mentions first or second resurrection? So you have a little riddle here uh, that talks about two resurrections and two deaths. And it says in Revelation 20, those who participate in the first resurrection do not participate in the second death. So we got to sort that out. Now, um, this, is a, this is a fun riddle to think about and to, to meditate on. So if I, get, if, I get the second, if I get the first resurrection, I don't get the second death. Here's what we can say as we sort this out and think theologically. This would be the pa- time when you can pause the podcast and try to sort it out yourself. Go check out Revelation uh, chapter 20, verse 5. But it looks like everybody participates in the second resurrection and everybody participates in the first, in the first death. Okay? So let's let the first death be the physical death and the second resurrection be the physical resurrection. Everybody will die. Everybody will be raised. Those who are alive when the Lord returns will be changed and appear before the judgment day, before the judgment seat. Okay? So the, the, the first death is physical death. The second resurrection is physical resurrection. The first resurrection, then, is spiritual resurrection, and the second death is spiritual death. And so what John is saying is those who participate in the spiritual resurrection don't participate in the spiritual death or condemnation or hell. And I think that the best way to understand this little riddle uh, from the rest of Scripture is to understand that the first resurrection is the resurrection that the Lord gives in baptism. So refer to Romans 6, uh, verse 4. We were buried with him by baptism into death, that we might also walk in newness of life. So that baptism is our first death and resurrection. And if we participate in the Lord's gift of baptism, then we don't participate in the second death or condemnation or hell. We're saved and rescued from that. So I think that the um, it's not the first resurrection is not the, a special physical resurrection of the martyrs, but it's the resurrection that the Lord gives to all of us by the promise that he delivers in baptism. We, we could call it faith or conversion if you wanted to, but I think baptism fits best with the rest of the scriptures, especially when we understand what the Lord is doing in baptism. Okay, Norma, great, great questions, great opportunity to think theologically with you. Uh, keep them coming, and if you are listening and you have questions, uh, wolfmuller.co slash contact. You can send those there. Producer Packer, he sorts through, finds the best, puts them up for me. It's really fantastic. God be praised. Here's just a little reflection on theology for the Judgment Day. Uh, I was scrolling through Twitter the other day, and Elon Musk thought I should see this a post from Dr. Kevin M. Young. I don't know exactly who this guy is, a theology teacher. I like to think of Twitter, by the way, as like Elon Musk sitting behind a desk wondering what I should see and then sending it to me. I'm sure that's, <laughs> I'm sure that's how, it, how it works. Okay, anyway, Kevin Young, some public theologian, I suppose, teacher, says, the most powerful game changer in my theological journey was this. When I'm eye to eye with Jesus, I know I will have been wrong in some of my beliefs. In that moment, I would rather risk 
having been far too loving than too condemning of his children. Let him be the judge. Matthew 25, 31. So, so now this is a common, I think, this, and, and the response to this, I don't know how many, sh- 300 shares, a bajillion likes or whatever. This is, this, this is a really common thought in more progressive theology. And that is the idea that there is a, um, a line between loving and condemning, and we want to be found on the loving side. Now, the, I suppose the Lutheran uh, way of saying this is that we err on the side of the gospel. But look, um, we, the Lord, there's so many ironies in this. Maybe the first thing is, I'm all about our theological work having an eye toward the judgment day. In other words, we should know that especially those who are public teachers, pastors, and so forth, but everybody is going to be held accountable for their theology by the one who will judge the living and the dead. And we'll have to give an account to the words that we spoke. And we, part of the judgment day will include this podcast. It's crazy to think of. So that we ought to exercise an extreme care in our articulation of our theological points. I'm all about it. We, we have to have an eye towards the judgment day. But how, what is a great irony is that the eye towards the judgment day means that I am less judgy. And, the, and there's, a, there's like five layers of irony here. This is like, a, a, the, like the five-layer dip that you can get. Is that the, It's just irony on irony on irony, and that is that I use the judgment day as a reason to not judge, to not be judgy, and then I post up my not judginess to make sure that everyone who is judgy is judged. <laughs> my lack of condemnation becomes a condemnation for those who are busy condemning. It's crazy. Now, look, we should love one another. We're commanded to love one another, but we're commanded also to speak the truth in love. And there are things that are simply wrong and dangerous, and we cannot absolve our own conscience by this theological trick that says, when I stand before God on the judgment day, I want to be, if, if I'm guilty, I want to be guilty of being nice. If I'm guilty, I want to be guilty of loving too much. Oh, you... Jesus is going to say, boy, you you did that all wrong, but you loved and you loved too much. No, no. We are not authorized to ignore the Lord's words. We are not authorized to ignore the Lord's commandments. He wrote them on stone for a reason. And if we were to dash the Lord's commands to the ground like Moses, we should not think that we'll be safe to enter into the promised land. That's the whole point. We, we can't throw away the Lord's commands. Let me, if I could, read you some Luther. This is how Luther thinks about doing judgment, doing theology with an eye to the judgment. This is, I guess I should probably publish this. In his, oh, this has got to be uh, 15, I don't know. This is Luther's great confession concerning Christ's Supper. And there's three parts. The one where he articulates his view of the Lord's Supper. The second where he argues against the Zwinglians and all the opponents to the body and the blood. And then the third part is, it's kind of like Luther's um, last theological will and testament, where he just simply articulates his theology. And and that's, I, I probably should, 
I don't know, it's under copyright, so it'd be hard. Maybe I can find, if anybody knows of a place where that great confession is, there's a translation that's not held under copyright, I'd love to publish that as a little standalone piece. It's like Luther's Augsburg Confession. And he says that when I confess these things, I'm not making them up. I'm serious about it. I, it has, our confession has the seriousness of the judgment day. And here's how he articulates that. I see that schisms and errors are increasing proportionately with the passage of time, that there's no end to the rage and fury of Satan. Hence, lest any person during my lifetime or after my death appeal to me or misuse my writings to confirm their error, as the sacramentarian and Baptist fanatics are already beginning to do, I desire with this treatise to confess my faith before God and all the world point by point. I am determined to abide by it until my death, and so help me God, in this faith to depart from this world and to appear before the judgment seat of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hence, if anyone shall say after my death, if Luther were living now, he would teach and hold this or that article differently, for he did not consider it sufficiently, etc. Uh, uh, let me say once for all that by the grace of God I have most... Ooh, Pastor... Producer Packer's trying to get a hold of me. Uh, let me say once for all that by the grace of God, I have most diligently traced all these articles through the scriptures. I have examined them again and again in the light thereof, and have wanted to defend all of them as certainly as I have now defended the sacrament of the altar. I am not drunk or irresponsible. I know what I am saying, and I well realize what this will mean for me before the last judgment at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let no one make this out to be a joke or idle talk. I am in dead earnest, since by the grace of God I have learned to know a great deal about Satan. If he can twist and pervert the word of God in the scriptures, what will he not be able to do with my or someone else's words? Now, th th this is what is the result of doing theology with an eye to the judgment, to know that we will be held accountable for that which we confess, so that we would know that so, so that if we if we wanted to have this attitude that we'll be judged on the judge on the judgment day and we'd rather be on this side of things than that side of things, then let us be on the side of the Lord's word. Lord, you said this, and I believed it. Lord, you commanded this, and I tried to hold to it. Lord, you promised this, and I trusted it. it the judgment day sets us to believe the words. Not to the cavalier idea that, well, I might sin and I might do something wrong, but at least I was motivated by love and at least I had good intentions. Let our intentions on the judgment day be to believe simply what the Lord says, which includes love your neighbor as yourself, but also includes love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We, we cannot, um, the judgment day, cannot be a strange excuse to be less judgmental. We have to abide by what the Lord's word says. Now, you all should know that I'm, I'm not about kind of trying to establish an angry Christianity. We need to have more joy in the Lord's word. We need to have more joy in the Lord's truth. And, and we need to be convinced that when the Lord tells us what's right and wrong, that he gives us that out of love. What, what ends up happening when I say that I'm, I'm going to be more tolerant and accepting and less judgmental 
uh, to be safe on the judgment day, what we're, what we're really doing is standing and judging God and saying that his word, his declarations, his law, his articulation of what is right and wrong is harmful and hurtful, and I'm not going to be, and I'm not going to stand by it. I'm going to soften what he says so that I don't come off as judgy and condemning. But in that whole process, we end up condemning God. We end up calling him mean. We end up being more compassionate than the one whose heart and blood spills for us. And that is a dangerous place to be on the judgment day. May God protect us from it. Hey, thanks for hanging around. What not the podcast. I'd love your feedback, your questions. Producer Packer, he answers a lot of them, but then he sorts the best ones, puts them here. You can send us a note, wolfmuller.co slash contact. Some announcements coming up. Don't First of all, don't forget to sign up for the Wednesday Whatnot, the free weekly newsletter. Try to give away a book, a free book every month. And you can subscribe to that newsletter also for five bucks a month. That five bucks gets you nothing. It's not nothing at all. You you If you don't subscribe, if you just sign up for free, you get the same exact thing that you get if you pay five. Oh, why would I pay five bucks then, Pastor Wolfmuller? Well, it's like the tip jar, you know. It's uh, it's just a little thank you. And using that extra money on the Substack subscription to uh, help out, um, to provide some extra help on the back end, hopefully some more production stuff and some video production stuff, if we can get to a good point. So your subscription is a helpful donation to the cause, thinking theologically along with you. Also, hey, if you're around Washington, D.C., January 19th, 2021st, I'll be there, especially at the Youth for Life a conference, speaking with them and also marching with them. That'll be great. And we have a March for Life here in Texas the next weekend, January 28th, that's Saturday, 8 o'clock, uh, we'll have refreshments. Pastor Cole will be down to pray uh, with us, lead us in prayer at 9. I'll teach a Bible study at 10. That's all here at St. Paul in Austin. And then we'll go down to the Texas Capitol. So, U.S. Capitol, March, no, January 21st, Texas Capitol, January 28th. Uh, Join me for those if you can, stand up for the cause of life. And then we've got a one-day conference Saturday, February 11th at Bethany, uh, uh, Naperville, Bethany, Naperville? Is it Bethany? I'll double check. February 11th in Naperville, Illinois. Keep it clean. Talking about what it means to be a Christian in these days, these dark days. Uh, So that'd be great. See Pastor Clemmer there. It's got to be Bethany. Am I forgetting the name? Anyway, all all the upcoming events are at wolfmuller.co. At the thing there about or whatever. There's an events page and you can see the upcoming things. If you're interested in um and jumping in on those uh, that'd be really great all right i think that's enough thanks for hanging around to the end uh hope you have a blessed and joyful epiphany god's peace be with you